You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're going to be discussing globalization and trade, a topic that is very much in the news. As we'll hear, however, there are forces at work much bigger than the trade policies of any one government. The flow of goods and services across the world is determined by the sourcing decisions of millions of companies. And those decisions are driven in turn by patterns of demand, assessments of risk, and the march of technology. To discuss all this, I spoke with Susan Lund, a partner with the McKinsey Global Institute based in Washington, D.C. If you want some bedtime reading on this one, you can download the report, Globalization in Transition, which you can find, of course, on McKinsey.com. Susan, thanks so much for doing this and welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be here. There's a lot of political rhetoric and also some policy action around trade, tariffs, talk of protectionism. So I guess that, you know, the big question, the, the, the opening question is, you know, have we reached peak globalization? Is globalization actually in retreat? Yeah, sometime around the mid-2000s, the dynamics began to change. And I think that we didn't see this immediately because we had the 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession. Trade flows plunged in 2008-9. A lot of us thought, well, when the recovery gets going in the U.S. and Europe, then trade will, quote, go back to normal. Well, now we're 10 years out from that point, and we can look back and see, in fact, we're in a very different chapter of globalization. The trade intensity of manufactured goods is going down. That means that more goods that are produced are now sold in the country that they're produced in. They're not traded or exported and imported. But at the same time, we see services trade continues to grow much faster than goods trade. So increasingly, globalization is about trade in various forms of services like IT services and telecommunications, transportation, business services, these types of things. Um, our image of globalization for many of us is really of companies deciding to offshore production to countries where wages are very, very low. And indeed, that defined a lot of what we saw in the 1990s and early 2000s. But increasingly, we find that that's only a small share of global goods trade today, and it's declining. Low wages are no longer the driving force in global trade flows. But then the flip side is, well, if low wages aren't so important, what are companies looking for? And here we find that R&D and innovation and investment in intangible assets is increasingly important in virtually every industry that we look at. And this means to get those things, you want to think about production in places where there's a skilled workforce and engineers and a startup ecosystem. And then the final big change is just that we talk about globalization, but over the last five years, what we see increasingly is regionalization. So trade within regions like the EU28 or the Asia-Pacific region is growing much faster than the long-haul global trade. Double-click, if you don't mind, on the trade intensity point. 
I mean, if the percentage of output that is traded across borders is declining, in my own rather noddy layperson's way, that that says to me globalization in some sense, that naive sense perhaps, is is sort of in reverse. So is declining trade intensity actually, like, is it a bad thing? No, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. It actually reflects the shift in where the world's consumers are. Increasingly, China and other developing countries are home to a growing consuming class, people spending money on all sorts of goods. Um, And this explains why less goods are being traded. So what's produced in China is now sold in China. By 2030, we predict that emerging market consumers are going to account for more than half of global demand. And it just means that a lot of foreign companies and domestic companies that are producing in these countries are going to sell to the consumers in those countries. So it's actually a sign of economic development and strength. Let's talk a little bit more about the trade-in services. As you say, the official stats show that cross-border trade-in services is, is growing very fast. But I've seen in the research, this is both very difficult to measure and actually, you know, the official statistics may understate. Do you want to just, just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, services trade has always been the poor stepsister of manufactured goods. So trade negotiations often focus on things like cars or agricultural products. And services are harder to measure, but they are increasingly traded. And especially for advanced countries like the U.S., we're running a very large surplus in traded services. So that would be exports of business services, transportation services, tourism, education. Uh, in the future, we might see more trade in healthcare, remote healthcare. And it, these are important not only for countries, but for companies. One of the things we found is that if you take a traded manufactured product like an automobile, 30% of the value in creating that automobile actually comes from the services that go into it. So that includes the R&D and design. It would include the accounting and legal services and engineering services. It includes the distribution and logistics services, as well as the marketing and sales services. So even though we talk a lot about trade and goods, the service component of goods is incredibly important. And it's growing more important if you added up the services component of manufactured goods, if you considered all the intangible assets that global companies shift around the world, as well as these free digital services like music and video streaming or internet search and email, that it could well be that the value of traded services is already greater than the value of traded goods. And for some specific countries including the United States, our overall trade balance would look very different if you appropriately accounted for all the exports of services. Another trend that you mentioned is is the declining importance, even within goods, of lower value-added goods, and the decreasing importance of the labor arbitrage model, where you have exports from low-wage countries to high-wage countries. Just talk a little bit more about how that's declined and why that's declined. What we found is that if you look at all the goods trade today, 
only 18% is an export from a low-wage country to a high-wage one. And we're defining low-wage as countries where income per capita is one-fifth or less of the importing country. So first of all, that's already an astonishingly small component, given that our image of globalization is often about offshoring to low-wage countries. So already, in many, many industries, there are other factors driving global trade. And even when you look at the types of manufacturing that traditionally have used a lot of labor, like apparel, textiles, toys, and shoes, the value of trade going from a low-wage country to a high-wage country is declining even in those industries. So in textile and apparel, it was 55% of global trade was an export from a low-wage country to a high-wage country 10 years ago, and today that's down to 43%. The reason is really automation, that in all types of manufacturing, more and more production is being done by by machines. And when you start to automate production, then labor costs in general aren't as important. And instead, you're looking at different things. First of all, where can I get high-skill labor? Where can I get the engineers and the technicians to run the machines, to maintain the machines, You also then start to look at things like energy costs and electricity costs and the quality of infrastructure and logistics. Many companies are also now prioritizing uh, speed to market. We see this, for instance, in fashion. So as soon as Kate Middleton or, say, Kim Kardashian wears something, suddenly that item stocks out of shelves. So producers are now being caught up in the vagaries of of, uh, social media driving trends and tastes. But we see this not only in things like fashion, but all sorts of consumer products. Consumer tastes and demand seem to be shifting more quickly, and product cycles are shortening. So all of this favors then putting production close to large consumer markets like the U.S. or Europe, not halfway around the world where it might take a good 30 days on a ship to reach the market. You mentioned automation there, and a little earlier you mentioned telemedicine. Is there a sense in which the role of technology is changing you know, we know that technology massively reduced transaction costs, particularly cross-border transaction coordination costs, just make it way, you know, facilitated global trade in, in many ways. Is there a sense that, that maybe there's a wave of technology coming that doesn't have quite such a simple effect and actually may encourage the onshoring of production that may previously have been offshore or certainly nearshoring of production that may, may previously have been offshore? What we see are two opposing forces from technology. On one hand, you still have technologies that will make trade more efficient, faster, and lower cost, and that would tend to boost global trade. So technologies like blockchain to track where goods come from or to automate payout of trade credit and insurance contracts, Um, the Internet of Things where you can now track a shipment of goods as it moves around the world with more precision, automated document processing and customs, or autonomous vehicles and ports that streamline the amount of time it takes to to upload and unload a ship. All of these things will continue to encourage more and more goods to be traded uh, as it gets faster and cheaper to do so. But then on the other hand, 
you see this these technologies that we've started to talk about, like automation or 3D printing or artificial intelligence, that will start to favor producing goods uh, in different parts of the world. And that could actually reduce global trade flows. I'm going to make a very simplistic point here, but as a, as a layperson, we do tend to get uh, somewhat fixated on the politics and the ret rhetoric and the tariffs. And as you say, those are real and, and those could impose real costs or indeed, you know, the, on the other side, reduce, you know, the costs and facilitate global trade. But actually, our picture of globalization is a function of some very big, multi-decade exogenous forces, like the role of technology, like economic development, like the pattern of global demand. All sorts of things actually are driving this that are way, way bigger than what the policymakers in any one country will do. And that is probably a very naive observation, but would you probably agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And I don't think it's a naive observation. I think it's exactly what our report highlighted. The ultimate trade numbers that we talk about are really the result of the decisions of millions and millions of different businesses deciding where to source inputs, where to produce goods, where to sell to consumers. And then it all adds up. And I think, ironically, this is why you saw at the end of 2018, the U.S. came in with the largest trade deficit ever in history. And you might be surprised to say why. It's like, well, because tariffs were put on a whole lot of imported in inputs that companies could not very quickly find an alternative source for. So that just meant that the value of imports went up. And at the same time, many countries retaliated against U.S. agricultural products like soybeans. Well, it is easy to switch your soybean source from, say, the U.S. to Brazil. You can do that very quickly, but you can't very quickly switch out a very particular automotive component that you're importing. And so ironically, the U.S. ended up with, you know, a larger trade deficit uh, than ever. One more trend you, you mentioned at the start we haven't really gone back to yet, but let's talk a little bit more about the regionalization, the emergence of these sort of more intra-region trade flows. Again, sort of what's driving that and what are the implications? When you look purely at the data, um, a lot of integration within the EU28 and within the Asia-Pacific regions are really driving this increase in regionalization. But the more fundamental reason is that companies are thinking more about things like speed to market. There's also a lot of focus on integrating with your suppliers. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, the creation of these offshore suppliers halfway around the world was really an arm's length relationship. Well, now there are a variety of different reasons that companies are really thinking about how can they collaborate with their suppliers or how can they um, set up integrated digital platforms to improve the efficiency between the supplier and the user of the input. Um, well, to do that, you need to have a relationship with that supplier. You need to know them. You need to agree to co-invest. Um, companies are even collaborating on things like product design and manufacturing processes. And all of that favors having suppliers that are nearer by in your region rather than 12 hours away the other side of the globe. 
And the other fascinating thing from everything that you're saying is this really is a very different pattern on multiple levels uh, than the pattern of globalization that we, we saw previously. And actually, for many people, probably including me, that's still my kind of mental model of what globalization is. It, it's not regional trade. It's not services. It's, you know, ships full of, of relatively low value added goods, you know, sailing around the world. Um, you know, particularly, let's start, if I'm an executive, if I'm running a big company, playing a part in, in the management of a big company, what do I do to make sure that I'm I'm really playing to win in the new era and not fighting yesterday's battle? Companies around the world are increasingly rethinking their global strategy. We did a survey of over a thousand business executives last September, and we found that three quarters of them say they are reconsidering their globalization strategy. So this is a very active issue that companies are debating. And it's in part because of the tariffs, but more fundamentally because of these changes in relative costs and what new technologies are enabling. Of those, nearly half say that they are changing their global footprint already, that they're increasing investments in some countries and decreasing in others. And Almost a quarter say they're investing more in domestic local supply chains rather than foreign sources of inputs so that they don't have to worry about tariffs and other trade barriers altogether. So that's a huge change. Leading companies are already at the forefront of these changes. And indeed, what we see is that some of them are actually already profiting. So we talked about the need to collaborate with your suppliers. Well, analysis and a survey done by McKinsey's operation practice found that the manufacturing companies that say that they collaborate closely with their suppliers on a range of production and design issues are growing their profitability faster, much faster than companies who say they only minimally collaborate with their suppliers. And the ones who say they don't collaborate at all with their suppliers actually over the last five years have actually seen their profitability decline. So a public example that's been written about in the press is Columbia Sportswear, uh, where they will design products to minimize the overall tariff impact. So for instance, if you have a pair of leggings, if you put you know a pocket on it, it then becomes a pair of pants, which have a different tariff rate than leggings. Or, is a very simple example. But the idea that you're engineering and designing a product to minimize tariffs um, and changing the design of the product or the fabrics you use or how you classify it, I think is really fascinating. Let's segue to, to the policymakers' view of the world. Again, if, if I'm thinking about economic development, I mean, particularly in a developing economy, uh, but also in, in developed economies as well, Again, how do I make sure that I'm I'm thinking forward and not sort of looking back at the previous chapter of globalization when I think about my my policy actions and, and where to place my bets, how to try and position my country in, in this new world? It's very clear that all of the trends I've talked about will favor advanced economies because they are the ones with the skilled workforce, the good logistics infrastructure, uh, the engineering and high-skilled talent. Uh, the intellectual property protections, all of these trends really favor uh, the U.S., European countries, say Korea, Japan, 
And they stand to benefit a lot, not only from the trade and services, but even perhaps picking up and, and accelerating manufacturing growth. Now, that's not going to necessarily replace the millions of manufacturing jobs lost in the U.S. Um, since 2000, because as we talked about, a lot of this production is automated, but the jobs that are created are very high wage and high skill. So it's ironic and unfortunate that in many advanced economies, policy seems to be focused on the losses from 20 years ago in globalization and the job losses and the restructuring of global production networks, rather than looking forward at capturing the opportunities that are now arising. For developing countries, the outlook is, is much less clear. Uh, we don't think that the opportunity to engage in labor-intensive manufacturing is over yet, but that window of opportunity is closing. So you do see countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh are still growing their exports very rapidly and building up these export industries. But over time, that's going to become um, less available for other countries that have not yet participated in global value chains. And I'm thinking in particular of a lot of African countries. So then the question is, well, what could be the next development ladder to take you from agriculture? You used to go into low-skill manufacturing, then you moved into higher value-added manufacturing and services. So one thought is, can services be that ladder? Certainly, uh, Costa Rica, the Philippines, India are three countries that have built up service export industries with call centers, IT help desks, and so on. Well, a lot of that basic work is also automatable, done by algorithms and AI. So for those countries to maintain their service exports, they're going to have to get into more complicated um, things like sales and really troubleshooting IT problems, not simply providing very basic information. We do make this distinction between labor-intensive services and uh, knowledge-intensive services. So it's like not all services are created equal. It's a very, very big and complicated bucket. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So there, there, there uh, we think will be increasing opportunities to trade and export in knowledge-intensive services, but increasingly labor-intensive services like call center work that's simply um, giving someone their account balance, like increasingly that can be done by a machine. Now, technology could also create wholly new opportunities for low-income countries. We see this, for instance, um, in the surge in mobile payments and mobile banking uh, that started in Kenya with M-Pesa. Um, and now you see it in China. So countries that had pretty underdeveloped payments networks and never went through a period where most adults had a formal bank account are skipping over directly and just going to mobile banking accounts based on their phones. So that's an opportunity that we call technology leapfrogging. And maybe there are going to be other opportunities as well where um, – Developing countries will really benefit from new technologies and skip over whole phases of development like, you know, the path taken in the U.S. or European countries where we all had bank accounts and checkbooks and we carry around cash. Well, they're going directly to paying with your phone. 
Does regionalization potentially offer some interesting new opportunities? You know, the opportunity to become a regional hub for for processing or manufacture or services? Yeah, so there's a whole range of goods that aren't widely traded. Things like uh, heavy commodities like steel and aluminum um, and food and beverage that are perishable. And so there's a lot of opportunity for more regional trade particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East and North Africa, and Latin America. So the regional trade figures for those parts of the world are very, very low. Say 20% of trade uh, is within regions in those parts of the world as opposed to with the rest of the world. And that compares to, say, two-thirds of trade within the EU-28 is just between countries in the EU 28. Only one third is to the rest of the world. So there is a big opportunity to create regional trading blocks in Africa, in Latin America, in the Middle East. You're starting to see it in East Africa with the East African community. And I think that the outlook for individual countries is really different. I think that we can't use general global observations, particularly in the developing world. I think there will be opportunities, but it's going to require much more nuanced, careful policymaking to look at the data and the facts and think about where are the opportunities for my country going forward. So I think we're out of time for today. Uh, But Susan Lund, thank you so much as always uh, for your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about our work on global trade, globalization, and the McKinsey Global Institute, please visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.